James shows us a faith that works. Here we go. You guys ready for a Bible study? Get your Bibles out, James chapter 3. We'll be looking at starting at verse 18, work our way to chapter 4, verse 12. Faith that works, working our way through the book of James. We're talking about relationships this morning. And as you well know, the book of James is showing us what our lives will look like if we have real faith or saving faith. This is what our lives will look like if we have saving faith. Grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along here, part of the intro. Relationships don't put you in conflict with with each other, one another, as much as they put us in conflict with, with our sinful nature. Think about that just for a moment. We oftentimes think that my relational conflict is because, well, this person I've got to deal with all the time. It's not so much that person, though they could be hard to deal with. There's no doubt about it. But it really has more to do with your own sinful nature and your ability to to respond appropriately to that conflict. So it's not, let me say it again, relationships don't put us in conflict with each other as much as they put us in conflict with our own sinful nature. And if you will not fight or flight, but face the inevitability of conflict in relationships, you will find them to be wonderful opportunities to grow in greater levels of maturity and intimacy, not only with God, but with others. See, our tendency is fight or flight. We all tend to fit into one of those categories. Those are the wrong ways to deal with conflict. And so, so this group here this morning, you're made up of either fighters or flighters, okay? And fighters would be more open aggression. How many fighters do we have in the house typically when it comes to conflict? Fighters. Okay, just like four of us. Okay, I know there's more of us than that, okay. Maybe you're not really sure what, what fighting is and how you're more confrontational. You kind of like to stir it up a little bit. You're going to deal with it right now. And so there's that more of that open aggression. And then the other one would be the more, uh, more of a passive aggression, and that would be more of the flighter. You, you fly, you, you, you leave, you, you ignore, you, maybe it'll go away, maybe they'll go away or something like that. How many flyers do we have? Flyers, okay. How many would say you kind of do both? Back and forth, okay. Schizophrenic. Yeah, bipolar, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I tend to find, I, I do the same thing. But here's the deal. If, you, if you'll be careful about it as you enter into conflict and you don't do the fight or flight, but you face the inevitability of conflict, it's going to happen. It gives wonderful opportunities to grow in, in your maturity and intimacy with, uh, with not just God, but with others. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago, just as our words are a window into our heart. That was scary when we talked about that. So our words reflect what's going on in our heart. How we relate and treat others is a window into the quality of our relationship with God. First John 4, 7 makes that real clear. So when we... When we're unable to love people horizontally, it's because vertically we don't love God and we don't know God. John's very clear about that, 1 John 4, 7 and 8. So this week we are looking at the importance of healthy relationships, the barriers to healthy relationships, and then how to break through those barriers. That's where we're headed. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray before we read our text and unpack these notes. 
So God, we are delighted to be here this morning. We love your presence. And, and you were so in love with community within the Trinity that you created a world of people to share it with. And our need for healthy relationships with you, our God who made us, and with one another is an indispensable condition for human flourishing. And so the health of our relationship with you, Father, is best displayed in how we treat and relate to each other. And so we pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, teach us the importance of healthy relationships, the barriers to healthy relationships, and how to break through those barriers. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said... Amen. So let's take a look at this text. So I'm going to read completely. It's pretty hard-hitting text. And so uh, here's, here's where we go. And uh, I, I wanted to start with the last verse of last week's text because I think it builds into it. And uh, if you didn't get a chance to hear that message, I would encourage you to go online or get our app and listen to it. Talked about wisdom from above. Talked about how we're to interact and relate to one another. And, and that's all part of this uh, relational conflict, dealing with uh, having good conflict resolution skills. And I begin reading chapter 3, verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Whoa. That's pretty pretty heavy duty. I want to start off here by uh, reading to you, it really, it's a, my favorite, one of my favorite classic DB stories. It's called Zipper Vengeance. <clears throat> a husband and wife were having a quarrel over the breakfast table. The quarrel remained unfinished as it was time to get to work. The wife, having trouble with her zipper on her dress, asked for assistance. And in a huff, the husband freed the zipper and then angrily ran it up and down rapidly several times and then left. 
That afternoon when the wife returned from work, there was a car in the driveway with a man lying on his back underneath the car except for his lower half. Remembering the breakfast incident, she went over, grasped the zipper on his fly, and zipped it down and up several times and stomped into the house. There, to her surprise, sat her husband drinking coffee. In great embarrassment, she explained to her husband what she had done. He rushed outside to find his neighbor out cold. When the wife had grasped his zipper, he had reflexively tried to sit up and knocked himself out. No wonder vengeance is not ours. So we're going to talk about conflict resolution here and, and, and in relationships, and it's really important for us to understand. Let's take this first idea here, the importance of healthy relationships. There's no way that you will be able to grow spiritually apart from deep involvement. That's your first fill in the blank. Deep involvement in in a healthy community of other believers. There is no way that you can grow spiritually apart from deep involvement in a healthy community of believers. I base that on verse 18, chapter 3, and it says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So James likens righteousness, which is supernatural character change, to a crop. And what does a crop need? Crop needs seed. It doesn't grow without seed. And what is the seed for this supernatural change life? Well, it's it's peacemaking. And peacemaking here in, in context doesn't just mean making peace between two people. It means creating oneness, a harmonious community. So let me reread it again. And a harvest of righteousness. So supernatural life change, if that's what we want, is sown, here's the seed, sown in peace by those who make peace. An environment of oneness, a harmonious community. That's what we need to be a part of if we're going to be healthy. You hear us say this from time to time. Life change happens best in small groups. So if all the connection you have is what we're doing here on weekend service, it's not enough. This is the catalyst for life change, but life change happens best in small groups. You need to be connecting with others at a much deeper level than what you would do here on our weekend services. Uh, Let me give you a couple verses here to back that up. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. I won't read the verse, but I'll kind of paraphrase it. It says this basically, exhorting one another every day is what keeps our hearts from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Over time, our hearts will become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but if we will be in a community of healthy believers who are exhorting one another, it will keep our hearts soft, keep our hearts from being deceived by sin. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Let me also paraphrase that. You probably are familiar with this. It says, don't neglect getting together with others, other Christians, as some are in the habit of doing. We kind of neglect getting together regularly, maybe coming to church or connecting with other Christians. And he says, don't neglect getting together. And when you get together, consider how you can stir one another on toward love and good deeds. So my question is, who's in your corner cheering you on in your Christian faith or holding you accountable or helping you in some way or another? You need that. 
You desperately need that. Here's the next point on your notes, and we're talking here about the importance of healthy relationships, so you need deep involvement, but you also need to know this, that the beauty and the depth of our love for one another is the strongest argument God has given us to show the world who he is. So the beauty and the depth of our love for one another is the strongest argument God has given us to show the world who he is. John chapter 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. What's so amazing about this, he's getting ready to die on the cross for them. He goes around, he washes their feet, and then after he does this, he says, do as I have done unto you, and then he makes this statement. It's found in John 13, 34. Maybe you're familiar with this. He says, and by, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your what? By your love for one another. How will people know that we're disciples of Christ? By our love for one another. Listen to what Jesus says in John 17, 21. This is Jesus' highly or high priestly prayer. And this is what he says. That they may all be one. He's praying this to the Father. That they may all be one. That's us. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. So he's really talking about intimacy relationship, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. How's the world going to know that Christ was sent? By our harmony, by our unity, by our community, by our oneness, by our love for one another. Now, so we need deep involvement if we're going to be healthy in a healthy community of other believers. It's the strongest argument God has given us to show the world who he is. But here's the next one. This is pretty hard hitting. I think this is what James is telling us. If we fail to create and be a part of healthy Christian community, either by indifference, because of indifference, or by fighting, it's hating God. It's hating God. So look at verse one of our text. What causes quarrels and fights among you? And then he goes on, talks about our desires. He talks about uh, our passions and our desires warring within us. And we can't get what we want, and so it creates conflict in our relationships. And then he says this in verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Literally, enmity means hateful, your hatred towards God. It's hatefulness towards God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of, of God. So those are all connected. So what is friendship with the world? It's, it's hatred toward God, but those together. So what is friendship with the world and hatred towards God? It's indifference towards community. It's fighting in community. So it's, it's not just an attitude of indifference, like, I don't need those folks. I can do whatever I want to do. I don't need to be connected with other Christians. Or even when you do connect, all you do is fight. You don't get along. He's just saying, that's hatefulness towards God. It's uh, interesting. We live in a day and time that everyone would say that they want community and friendship but mention accountability or commitment to people and, and they run the other way. And it's because we live in a culture that values anonymity more than accountability and individualism more than commitment. You know what anonymity is? I don't want anybody to know my business. 
And, and people that do that, they don't understand God's grace. They don't understand the acceptance that they have in Christ. They're not willing to open up. They're, they're fearful. And a lot of it's shame-driven. It's because they haven't really entered into the grace of God where there's a greater degree of transparency and, and understanding. But you know what individualism is? It's like, I don't need anybody. I can do this on my own. And that's, that's rampant in, in American culture. And it's, listen to me. It's one of the reasons why mega churches thrive is because you can come into a church and be anonymous and kind of very individualistic and put your money in the box and, and not really be connected to anybody. They don't know whether you're there or not there. It doesn't really matter. I checked the box. I'm going through the motions. And, and you can do that here. We're not a mega church, but we're a, we're a big church. Church, we're much bigger than the average church. 80% of the churches are below 250. The average church size is still about 100. But it's so much easier just to kind of come and hide. I don't want anybody to know that I'm here. I'm not going to connect. I'm not going to get closer than this. And that's, that's extremely unhealthy. You're not going to grow. If, you, if you're celebrating individualism, I don't need anybody, or anonymity, I don't want anybody to know what's going on in my life. That's extremely unhealthy. And uh, I'll be careful about how I say this because I think I might have offended a few folks in the first service, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to walk very carefully here. But, but you know what happens when you isolate yourself from people? When you don't, you're not around a lot of people and, 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 and healthy people. I'm talking you need to be around some really healthy people. You know what happens when you do that? You get weird. Okay, you do. I'm sorry. You, you just, and so you really need to be around other people. There's an accountability that's really healthy. We need each other. And so that's the value of, of, of healthy relationships. That first point, the importance of healthy relationships. We need to move on because we need to talk about, well, what creates the barriers? Why do we struggle so much? Why do we have conflict? Well, the barriers to healthy relationships. Here's the first, uh, let me read verses one and two again because there's two key words in this and you can see them on your notes there. So what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That's, that's a key word, passions. And, and you desire... That's another key word. You desire and do not have, so you murder. And I don't know that he's saying that literally, although people do murder because of that, but, but we murder with our tongue. We murder with our relationship. We can certainly do that. And so you murder, you covet, and you cannot, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I get the idea. It's almost kind of like a, like a kid that's, that has, doesn't have much discipline. Parents haven't brought much discipline into their life, and he's kind of throwing a fit. He wants his way. That's all there is to it, and you're interfering with it. And that's kind of the idea that he's painting here. You do not have because you do not ask. So look at, look at your notes. So the first word is in verse 1, passions. The Greek is uh, hedone, which, where we get our word hedonism, and it means pleasure or desires for pleasure. Hedonism is the, the, the pleasure is your God. The next word is desire. The Greek word is epithumia, which is an over-desire. It's making good things into ultimate things. So let's put those two together. And basically what that means is, and it's the next fill in the blank on your notes, it's self-absorption. So what causes fights and quarrels among you? It's our self-absorption. Our self-absorption, it works its way out like this. You live your life to please yourself by trying to get from created things the hope, meaning, and happiness you should be getting from the creator. And someone gets in the way of that, oh my goodness, you're mad, you're angry, you're upset. So it's self-absorption. 
Your comfort, your convenience, your control is more important than anybody else's. Your needs, your wants, your desires are more important than the people in your life. And this attitude permeates our culture. Let me give you an example of this. It's uh, Elsa, one of the main characters in the Walt Disney movie Frozen. If you're a parent or grandparent, you've watched that a hundred times, okay? And so this is the song that she sings in the movie. Listen to the words of this song. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And that's really bad theology. Oh, my goodness. That's called self-absorption, Elsa. And our world applauds that. Woo! That's crazy. That's insane. It goes back to what I, I talked about last weekend. The, the, our culture is just saturated with follow your heart, be true to yourself. You are the master of your faith, the captain of your soul. And the Bible says that's suicidal. Thomas Howard wrote the book Splendor in the Ordinary, Elizabeth Elliot's brother a number of years ago. He wrote this. This is what he says. There are two ways to live. You have 100 opportunities every day to either operate on the basis of my life for yours, your needs above mine, or my life for me, my needs above yours. Now, notice as he's saying this, he's actually kind of helping us to understand, and, and I, I would add to that, he's helping us to understand the, the first one's more of a covenant relationship. Covenant relationship is my life, my life for yours, your needs above mine. The relationship is more important than my needs. But the next one is a consumer relationship, and that's predominant in our culture today. It's my life for me, my needs above yours. And when my needs are no longer being met, I'm out of this relationship. I'll go find another relationship. That's our culture. And so Tom Howard shows how this works. For example, he says, no child has ever received life without the laying down of his parents' lives in bearing him and nourishing him for many years. I mean, you guys know that, and you know that's true. The reason you are here is because your parents for 18 years kissed their time, money, convenience, lives goodbye, and uh, they, lived, they lived my life for yours, your needs above mine kind of life. He goes on and says, this laying down of life always entails a death. It is death, in effect, to my 10 minutes when I give, give them over to help you get something done. It is death to your privilege if you let someone else in urgent need cut in the line in front of you. The my life for yours principle is the only one on which any life at all is possible. To embrace it is to live, but to refuse it, in other words, to live my life for me, a very self-absorbed kind of life, is to spiritually die and spread death. There it is, heaven and hell lurking in your living room. And the root of this, it's on your notes here, the cause of this is pride, and the solution is humility. It's 
So the cause is pride. So this self-absorption that permeates our culture, the root of this is pride and the solution is humility. Look what it says here in in, uh, verse 6. But he gives more grace... Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So what is grace? So grace is God's. We sang about it this morning. It's his empowering presence. It's his, his empowering presence uh, in our lives, giving us that ability to, to be what he's called us to be, to do what he's called us to do. The empowering presence of God in our lives, enabling us to be what he wants us to be, to do what he wants us to do his presence, his power, his peace in our lives to be able to face anything, to be what he wants us to be, to do what he wants us to do. By the way, this only makes sense that we would be self-absorbed because you and I were meant to walk in the garden in the cool of the day and to look into the face of our maker and to receive all of the, the acceptance, security, significance we would ever need from him. But because we rebelled against him, we turned away from him, that spiritual alienation created a psychological alienation, creates an emptiness, a void within us. We become desperate to fill the void. We become self-absorbed. And then everything in our life becomes a means to an end. And so that's why he talks about this humbling ourselves and recognizing, oh my goodness, we need you, God. We need you to fill us up. By the way, there's other words for this idea of pride. The the word conceit is used in Scripture too. And chapter 2 of Philippians talks about conceit. And the word conceit means vain glory, empty of glory. We're empty of the glory of God. Therefore, we try to find glory in a created thing as opposed to the creator. So we're desperate to fill, fill up that void within us. And we've got to humble ourselves before God and recognize our need for him. Humble yourselves before the the Lord and he will exalt you. And of course, evidence of that, I put verses 11 and 12 there. When we speak evil or judge other Christians, it is evidence of pride in us, putting ourselves above the law and playing God. Now, I gave you a whole list. This is on your notes. It won't be up on the screen, but let me walk you through what that looks like, what pride looks like in relationships and then what humility looks like in relationships, okay? This is gonna continue to get really, really convicting, okay? Conviction is really good stuff because it's God, it's the Holy Spirit uh, wooing us to himself to greater levels of intimacy and maturity in him. It's not to shame us, It's to grow us up because he loves us. But uh, let me give you these. So pride, pride is more aware of others' faults. Humility is far more aware of your own faults than others. So, So in conflict, you're not constantly pointing the finger that way. You're pointing the finger this way. You're going, hey, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry what I did. I want to apologize. I want to take responsibility for my part in this. And so what it does is it kind of de-escalates the, the issues, the problem, because you're coming with a great deal of humility. There's a lot more to that we could talk about. I talked about it last weekend a lot. You'll have to listen to that message. But here's the next one. Pride speaks of others' faults with an air of contempt and disdain. Can you believe those people? Oh, my goodness. I would never do that. Well, that's pride. But humility, only when necessary, speaks of others' faults with grief and mercy. Pride quickly separates from people who you've criticized or who criticized you. In other words, you separate, you're cold to them or you avoid them. 
Humility sticks with people even through difficult relationships because you don't give up on them because it's not a consumer relationship, it's covenant. Covenant is what we should be having not just with our marriages but in our home with our kids but also covenant within the church family that you stick with people through thick and thin, through, through hard times and good times. Here's the next one. Pride is dogmatic and sure about every point of belief. Proud people cannot distinguish between major and minor points of belief because everything they believe is major. They're always fighting with people because they can't stand to be contradicted. They always have to be right. Humility seeks unity in the essentials, liberty in non-essentials, but in all things love. So this is what's crazy, and this is where I see a lot of the the fight in in the church in America today. It's over non-essentials. Now, there are some things in in the essentials. There are certainly things that we need to unify over, and those that would not fit within that category of unity within the essentials would be heretical. They would be outside of the pale of orthodoxy, obviously. We'd say, ah, that's heresy. And we need to be able to make that distinction. But man, there's a lot of things that are just not essentials, and we fight over it. Now, we can debate it, but we shouldn't divide over those things. We need to know the difference. But in all things, love. Even if you disagree with someone, they ought to walk away thinking, you know what, I don't agree with their opinion, but boy, do they, I know they love me. They would take a bullet for me. And that blows my mind, and yet they speak truth to me. They must really care about me. I don't want to hear their truth, but oh my goodness, I can't deny that they love me. See, that's, that's that humility. Pride either loves to confront because they like winning or refuses to confront because they don't want criticism and controversy. So this is that, that open aggression or passive aggression kind of approach. So, so there's that person that likes to confront. I'm going to deal with that right now. I'm going to get up. I'm going to confront them. I'm going to confront them. And, I'm gonna, you know. and then there's that other person. I don't want to confront anybody. So that's more of that passive aggression. And so those are those two extremes. Humility confronts when it is necessary with loads of gentleness and love. And by the way, let me just say that obviously, you know, as we're working through this, immediately the, the idea comes, so let me, let me get this straight, Pastor Ray. So their needs are more important than my needs. So what about abusive situations? What about those kind of scenarios? Well, well, let me just say this. You need to understand this. It is never loving to allow someone to, allow someone to sin against you. Never loving. And you're not doing what's in their best interest. You're not actually meeting their needs. It's because you're letting them pummel you in some way, maybe verbally or any other way. That's, that's wrong. That's not humility just to take it. That's actually a form of pride. Humility would say, hey, wait, 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 you can't do that to me. And I'm going to draw the boundary here. See, that's really healthy. That's healthy. And so, so you kind of know when to confront. There's appropriate times to confront, but you do it with loads of, of love and kindness. And you even draw strong boundaries. That's so healthy. And, uh, and so here's the next one. Pride, this is really a good one here. Pride is often unhappy and full of self-pity because it is sure of how life ought to go and is convinced it deserves a life better than it is getting 
You know how many Christians I come across that are living right there? Let me read that again. Pride is often unhappy and full of self-pity because it is sure of how life ought to go and is convinced it deserves a life better than it is getting. That's very religious. I went to church, I read my Bible, I prayed, I dropped money in the box, and this is how my life is going? Where's God in all of this? That's called religion. You don't understand God's grace. Oh my goodness, my heart breaks for you. See here, listen to what humility is. Humility realizes how little it deserves and how much it has received from God, trusting him to always do what is in your best interest. See, if you understand God's grace, I mean, you're through the roof. You don't, you're like, you're overwhelmed by what he's done for you and what you have in him. You just celebrate who God is and what he's done for you, no matter how your life goes, because of what you have in him. You're overwhelmed with that. You're in wonder and praise. You're lost in wonder, praise, and love because of all that he's done for you. That would be healthy, healthy Christianity. Here's the next one. Here's the last one. Thank goodness, um, because these are hard. But pride feels it deserves, pride feels it deserves admiration either because of success or suffering. Okay, let me, let me explain what this means. You guys still with me? Okay, you guys are kind of quiet out there. Is it conviction? Okay, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, okay. We like conviction, okay, that's cool. So here's what I mean by this. Pride, there's two sides of this coin called pride, and the one is is boasting, I deserve admiration because of how much I've accomplished. Look how, look how wonderful and great I am. You, you guys do know that. I, I could use a little more affirmation from you because I am pretty wonderful and great. And I'm really kind of down in the dumps today because you don't affirm me enough because I've accomplished quite a bit of few, few things. See, that would, that's one uh, side of the coin. It's called boasting. I deserve admiration because of what I've accomplished. But then there's the flip side of that, and it's also self-absorption. It's called self-pity. I deserve admiration because of how much I've suffered. So one is a superiority complex. The other one is an inferiority complex. Both of them are self-absorption. I'm not going to say anything. I, I held my tongue. So helping a person out of an inferiority complex into a superiority complex by telling them to look out for number one keeps them trapped in their self-absorption. So we get around a person that's depressed, they're down in the dumps. The worst thing you can do is, come on, you can do it, you can do it, come on. You're a good person, yes you are. Let's, don't do that, okay? That's not going to help them. Their problem is that they're self-absorbed. They need to get their eyes on Jesus. Don't talk about them. Talk about Jesus and how wonderful he is and what he can do for them and how much they need him. Does that make sense? See, that's the best counsel that you can give to somebody is not try to, I'm going to go over there and cheer them up. Well, don't try to cheer them up. Just point them to Jesus. Believe me, if they understand who Christ is and what he's done for them, you just pray that the Holy Spirit will make that alive to their heart and they'll be a different person. They won't be down in, their, down in the dumps. They'll be lost in wonder, love, and praise of him. They'll not be thinking about themselves. See, a person with an inferiority complex is just as self-absorbed as a person with a superiority complex because it is, it is someone who is always down on themselves, feeling guilty, feeling bad, feeling like a failure, feeling sorry for themselves, feeling shy, feeling very self-conscious. It is still my needs over yours attitude. 
But here's what humility is. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's not self-absorbed. We talked about that a lot last week. So how, how to break through the barriers? How do you break through the barriers here? Well, he lays it out for us. It's found in verses 7 through 10. Repent and believe. He says, repent and believe. Turn from sin and turn towards the Savior. And that's, that's what humility begins to take place like that. We realize, oh, my goodness, this is wrecking my life. It's destroying me. I am desperate for you, Jesus. I, I give you my life. I surrender my all to you. And, and, and then you begin to be caught in that wonder, praise, and love unlike you've ever experienced before. So humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less because your heart is captivated by God's beauty and glory. Your heart is captivated by who he is and what he's done for you. That's where we need to live, that he's my rescuer, he's my redeemer, he loves me. I'm, I'm, my mind is dominated by who he is and what he's done for me. So how do we do this? How to break through the barriers of this self-absorption? Submit, resist, and draw near. Three things. First one, submit yourselves therefore to God. Submit yourselves therefore to God. The word submit literally means to line up under. The word was used of soldiers under the authority of their commanders. So surrender the control of your life completely to God. Surrender the control of your life completely to God. Okay, everybody look up here because here's the big lie that I'm kind of going against right now. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and here's the lie, the lie. If I surrender the control of my life completely to God, oh, I'll be miserable. Why do I want to do that? That's a lie. That's a lie that goes all the way back to the garden. If I surrender up all of my life completely to God, let him run my life, rule my life, oversee my life, I'll be miserable. That's a lie. God is more dedicated to our good and more aware of what it is than we are. When you surrender yourself completely to God and you bask in the reality of who he is and what he's done for you, this is what begins to take place. In his perfect love, you realize that he has your best interest at heart. He knows exactly what you need. He, he wants your good more than you want it. And in his infinite wisdom, he knows what you need. He knows exactly what you need. And in, in his unlimited power, he will always do what's in your best interest. And what will happen as you bask in the reality of that daily, every day, you will be supremely confident of your value and worth to him and believe that he is lovingly and skillfully and powerfully working all your circumstances for your good and his glory. That's what it means to submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Worry, discontent, and bitterness is evidence you are not submitting to God. Worry about the future. Discontentment about the present. Bitterness is about the past. If you have those operating in your life, it's evidence that you're not submitting to him. So what do you got to do? Well, here's, let's take the next step here. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is what you need to do. 
need to battle. The word resist literally means take your stand against. So there's some things that you need to take your stand against, primarily the enemy and how he tries to lie to us. We often think of humility as shyness and a lack of self-assertion. That's not what we see here. The devil is the most powerful personal evil being there is. So when he says resist the devil, man, that's, that's crazy is what he's saying here. But, but James is saying you don't need to be afraid of the devil. Resist him and he will run from you. He will flee from you. Here's the logic. I think James is helping us to see. If you don't need to be afraid of the devil, you don't need to be afraid of anything. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why? Why do we need need not be afraid of the devil? Because if your life belongs to God, the maker of heaven and earth, what do you have to be afraid of? Think about that. There are times in my devotion, I just sit and think, wait, you're the maker of the heaven and earth, I have access to you, to your throne room. I'm talking to you right now. You care about me. I'm having interaction with you. Oh, my goodness. Light that on fire in my heart. It makes a difference in how you respond to life. What is cowardice? What does it mean to be a coward? It's self-absorption, preoccupation with self. Oh, what's going to happen? What am I going to do? I don't know what to do. That's cowardice. What is courage? It is forgetting about yourself. Why would someone run into a burning building to save someone? They get courage. They're not thinking about themselves. They're thinking about the people that are in there. We're going to save them. That's not self-absorption. They're not thinking of themselves. There's a courage, wherever that courage might be coming from. That's what God wants us to have. Why is a humble person able to forgive when someone attacks them? because they don't care what others think of them. They are living in the reality of God's value and care of them. It's amazing. Kindness, graciousness, forgiveness, poise, patience, and courage are a lack of self-absorption because on the inside, you know how valuable you are to God and are filled with confidence to face anything. That's the point that he's trying to get across here. See, a proud person who doesn't have that inner confidence is always feeling snubbed, always feeling offended, is always feeling like they are not getting, they're not being treated right, is always bitter over the past, discontent in the present, worried about the future. That's why proud people are not loving, forgiving, reconciled kind of people. It's why proud people are always having blow-ups and meltdowns over how people are treating them and how their life is going because they're self-absorbed. It's all about them. Life is all about them. So how do you get humility and that inner sense of confidence? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) This is my favorite part of the message right here, and I'm glad you stayed and you didn't run out is awfully convicting. It's going to get a little more convicting, but it's going to get really, really good here. It says here, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Oh my goodness, those are wonderful words. Those are beautiful words. Pursue an intimate love relationship with God. See, a redeemed heart longs for communion with God. Now, now this is where it gets hard. Let me, let me read this next, this verse. Listen to what he says in verse four. He says, you adulterous people. 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What is James saying here? Listen to what he's saying. James is calling Christians who quarrel and fight unfaithful wives. In fact, the Greek here is you adulteresses. And so what we could say here is as the bride of Christ, we are in bed with other lovers is what he's saying. Don't you see? Your fighting and quarreling shows that you are being unfaithful to your Savior. You're in bed with other lovers. Pretty hard. You are trying to get from created things what you can only get from the Creator. You are loving created things more than you love God, that's why you're fighting and quarreling. See, that's those desires, those passions that wage war within you. There are things out there you think you can't live without. So how, how do I know I'm in bed with other lovers? Well, let me ask you this question. What do you inordinately worry about? Is it your career? Children, romance, money, your weight, your reputation, and the list goes on. Here's how you know you're sleeping with it. You don't just want it, but you can't live without it. And if anything happens to it, you lose your contentment and become inordinately anxious, bitter, and in despair. You are love sick over it. Here's what I've learned through the years. You guys know this. We, we teach this regularly here. You can never get out of romance, money, and accomplishments the fulfillment that only a relationship with God can bring. The most rapturous delights we have ever had in this world are a dim glimpse to the bottomless ocean of love and joy we have in Christ. Look at the next verse, verse 5. He says, this is, I would, I've been meditating on this verse, and oh my goodness, this is such a rich verse. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously? Who's the he? That's God. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Listen to how the message puts it. The message puts it this way. And do you suppose God doesn't care? He's a fiercely jealous lover. And what he gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. Oh my goodness, those are rich words. Those are good words. Now, when he talks about jealousy, it is not a human kind of jealousy. You guys know that. It's not pride, selfishness, and manipulation. It's a divine kind of jealousy that, that has our very best interest at heart. And, and what James is saying is that he is longing for your love like a husband longs for the love of his wife. We're the bride of Christ. He's using that language because we're the bride of Christ. He says, as the bride of Christ, when we fight and quarrel, we're sleeping around. It's evident of that. And he's trying to draw our hearts back to our Savior. The Bible is the greatest love story ever told from cover to cover. And this is, I, I love what Sally uh, Lloyd-Jones says in describing. It's from uh, Jesus' storybook Bible. She describes the, the Bible like this. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. That's what he's saying. He wants to rescue us. 
Do you ever notice how love songs use cosmic language? It's kind of crazy, isn't it? It's because there's something about falling in love that makes you want to say things like, my love for you is higher than the highest mountains and deeper than the deepest sea. Or how about this one? Longer than there have been stars up in heaven, I've been in love with you. That's not true. (laughs) What would make you say that? Why do you want to say that? When my wife and I hear those words, those cosmic words like that, we kind of look at each other and go, yeah, right. <laughs> because we know that ultimately we're going to get our, 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 the greatest love from God and then from that overflow, then we can love each other the way that we need to love each other. But it's, just, it's crazy, that, that kind of language, but it's because it reveals our heart's deepest longing and desire that only the creator can fully satisfy. So the next time you listen to a love song like that, it's using that kind of cosmic kind of language, always keep in mind that there's no person on this planet that ever can do that to you, that can give you that kind of love. Only God can give you that kind of love. Only the creator can say to us, longer than there have been stars in the heaven, I've been in love with you. Okay, Pastor Ray, where does he, where does he say that? He actually says it... In a lot of places, but in Ephesians 1, 4, he says that. And man, when that gets a hold of your heart, you're, you're like a totally different person. We long for the eternal ecstasy and the cosmic closure of mutual giving and receiving of forever love. His love for you is so intense that he wouldn't let even death and hell stand between you and him. The cross is the greatest act of love, humility, and the ultimate demonstration of my life for yours. And the more that gets a hold of your life, the more you'll find yourself living a my life for yours kind of life, all for his glory. Let's pray. Just take a few minutes. What's God speaking to you this morning so that you can respond to him? So, Father, we love you. Thank you. Thank you for this teaching and help us to realize that there is no reason for us to be selfish when we are filled with the wealth of your empowering presence. There's no reason we should ever be defensive when all charges against us have been dismissed by the real judge who died in our place for our sins. There's no reason we should ever be offended when the only eyes in the universe that matter considers us more valuable than all the wealth in this world. There's no reason we should ever resent giving forgiveness when we are overflowing with Christ's forgiveness of us. So may the beauty and depth of our love for one another Give strong evidence to the world of your indispensable and costly love for us. We pray in your son's glorious and beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys.